Actually, this feels like an appropriate thing to do. Since Joel is up here lighting the candles, which were blown out by the air conditioning at the 9 o'clock, um, uh, probably some of you have met Joel, but not all of you have. And Joel is a, an associate worship pastor on the west side. Thank you. I guess I need this later. And um, he has also been, if you, if you come here, you know, he's, he's been here almost every week for months now, like leading us in worship He's an incredible person with a heart that loves to serve, and he's been such a gift to our whole church, I think, in stirring up worship here and inviting us into the presence of Jesus. And so I just want to say thank you very much, Joel Norman, for carrying us through the season. It's been... Um, we, have a, we have a couple more weeks left in this year, and then beginning January 5th, uh, we actually have a lot of exciting things happening on January 5th, and I wanted to actually take a minute and let you know about them. Um, first of all, January 5th will be Micah Dalton's first Sunday here. He's our new worship pastor on the east side. We're super excited to get him here. Yep, um, we are very, very excited to have Micah join us on January 5th. Also, um, on January 5th, we are going to be spending the Sunday morning uh, sermon time looking at the next year. What is 2020 going to look like for Trinity on the east side it's going to be a chance for us to talk about the vision that we feel like God's given to us uh, as leaders and pastors here, and also for us to just sort of uh, invite one another to be on this road together. Uh, so I hope that if you are in town, you can come on January 5th. And then that evening, we're going to have a big party here. We're going to have an epiphany feast. It's the night before epiphany. And we're going to do a potluck here in this building, and we're going to celebrate that God's light has come into the world and that the darkness cannot overcome the light of God entering into a dark world. And so if you are new here, you don't know this yet, but Eastsiders, we love to eat here. It's a high value. It's one of our main things where we care about. And so we will gather and eat good food and celebrate together. So mark your calendars, January 5th. If you're in town, just kind of block it out and say, at church all day, day. And that'll be January 5th, and we'll begin the year together. I'm going to read to, uh, to you this morning from the, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. And if you want to turn there, Matthew 11... Um, I'm going to read verses 2 to 11. Also, as you're turning there, if you're new here, you're visiting, hey, welcome. I'm Matthew. I'm the pastor here. I'm really glad you're here. Welcome to church. It's good to be together in God's house today. So when John the Baptist, that is, heard in prison what the Messiah, that is Jesus, was doing, he sent word by his disciples, John's disciples, and said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. And yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Um, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that um, you invite us into this space and into this season of Advent. You invite us to, um, to stir up in our consciousness the reminder that you are here with us, God with us. We're not here today, Lord, trying to um, convince ourselves of something that isn't real, but to simply open ourselves up to the awareness of what is, what is going on. Your spirit is here. You have come to do your work. Lord, we just invite you in. Holy Spirit, come. Come, Lord, and open us up to hear from you. Come and help us to be a people who who walk in the way of Jesus. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you have given us the gift of the, the church, of worship, of the scriptures. But most of all, Lord, we do thank you that you have given us the gift of yourself. Help us to open our arms to receive that gift. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So it is Advent. It's the third week of Advent. Um, that pink candle took a beating in the 9 o'clock. I mean, that thing was, it was 8 feet tall at the beginning of the 9 o'clock. Um, but it's the third week of Advent, and um, the, uh, uh, we, we only have 10 days left. And you know this, right? I mean, there's 10 days left, and then it's Christmas. And before we know it, these next 10 days are going to fly by. And maybe the whole month is flown by. Maybe it's like the 15th. You're like, oh, no, I, d- I did it again. And I just want to say, if that's, if that's you, it's, first of all, like, there's, there's, there's grace. Um, there's always opportunities to take like, little moments in these last 10 days and just to be quiet, um, to create space. It's not too late. It's not too late to create space in our hearts for Christ to be born. It's not too late for us to remember that this is a season that's meant to stir up hunger in us, not to overindulge and satiate us. It's actually meant instead to, to create longing and groaning within us. And that can be a hard thing to do. Um, but I would just invite you, if nothing else, if you don't know what to do, you have no way how to, like how to do this, come on Wednesday morning at 7 o'clock and pray with us in this room. If you don't have to be in class, if you don't have to be at work, come at 7 o'clock to this room and pray with us. If you live over on the west side of town, go to the west side and do it over there. Um, we would just love for you to come and just remember... Um, what this is about. This is about a people growing a hunger for God to do what only he can do, who become increasingly dissatisfied with the world as it is and begin to see it for, uh, for how beautiful it is and yet how broken it is, and its need for some rescue, its need for healing, its need for a Savior. And so if you haven't, you feel like you've just missed the whole season, I just want to just tell you it's not too late. There's 10 days, and I hope that you'll try little ways of Advent keeping with us. In my family, we're lighting candles. We've just been slowly watching them burn down, uh, marking time for us. Um, it's informing the songs we're listening to. It's informing the way that we're eating. It's kind of we're holding off on some feasting. And there's lots, just lots of ways that we can engage this season together. I think today's text is just perfect in some ways. It answers or asks rather some of the deep questions um, that Advent is meant to raise in us. And we start this text with this man, John the Baptist, well-known probably to to all of us in here, even if you're relatively new to church, because he's such a significant figure in 
Christianity. And he's a very strange Advent figure, but as we said last week, John is the perfect Advent figure because his entire life message was actually Advent. It was preparation, readying yourself for the coming of God. Whereas last week, though, John was in prison. We saw him, he was in the wilderness, he was preaching, he was baptizing, he was fruitful, he had a very powerful ministry. We find him this week uh, sitting in death row, which is where we begin today. John is in prison, and he's in prison for doing nothing wrong. Uh, We find out in Matthew 14 that the reason he's in prison is because he spoke out against the wedding, the royal wedding, between Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, you know, Herod the Great is the one from earlier in Matthew who kills all the babies, the jealous king, the one who's always in the Christmas plays. So Herod had a son, Herod Antipas. He had actually multiple sons. But Herod Antipas is now ruling and reigning in that area. And he married, <coughs> excuse me, he married his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. They weren't very creative with names. And so Herod and Herodias were husband and wife now. And that was against the rules. It was against the Mosaic law. And so John, a Jewish prophet, gets thrown in prison for quoting Moses to the king of the Jews about his unlawful marriage. And because Herod has power, he's able to use it to just get rid of a person he doesn't want. His wife Herodias doesn't like this guy. She doesn't like him meddling in their personal affairs. And so she just says, get rid of him. So that happens. And I think that we're just meant to just recognize as we begin this week, like what is the context where we find ourselves as Advent keepers? What is the context? The context is that you and I live in a world where this kind of stuff happens. You and I live in an unjust world. We live in a broken world. And even though I know that most of us in here would say that we enjoy certain protections and freedoms, you know, even as citizens of this country, uh, things that would keep us from experiencing some like naked power play, like what John's getting here. The reality is is that the world that we live in is a world that actually continues and furthers and supports this very sort of unjust, unfair, broken, corrupt way of life. When I say that the world is unjust, what I simply mean is that there doesn't appear to be a direct, predictable, general, and universal correlation between what happens to a person and whether or not they deserve for it to happen. I think we would agree on that. There just doesn't seem to be a direct correlation. Things happen to people all the time, and we go, that doesn't seem very fair. Meanwhile, people that should have things happen to them get off scot-free. And we stand on the sidelines, or we actually experience these things directly, and we say, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't square up with how I understand justice or how I would think God would want the world to work if he actually was king and actually was ruling as the Bible says he is. The healthy people among us fall prey to sickness. Um... Uh, A a person who uh, uses their power to exploit the poor is rewarded with profit and more power. Innocent people are victimized. Sudden loss, crushing loss, devastating tragedy can come to any one of us, and it seems sort of indifferent. It doesn't seem to be based on any number of things, like the goodness of a person or how much money you have. or It just sort of seems unfairly doled out. The world is structured in such a way that it is unfairly weighted to support and work for me a white man, whereas a person who is more competent, more intelligent, more talented than me has to work harder simply because of gender or race or sexual orientation. There's just an injustice to the world. It's just not very fair. It's not fair that like a disabled child is born into a world that is actually engineered against that child fitting in, let alone succeeding in it. 
This is the world that we live in. And Advent is meant to wake us up to this. It's meant to, re- meant to remind, us of, uh, 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 remind us of this. That you and I live in a world that is, that is, at least from the outside, appears to be deeply flawed in the, in the scales of justice. John is in prison for doing nothing wrong. And we are meant to just see this as it is and to groan. This is the world we find ourselves in. And all of us at different times will either, either in the past or today currently or in the future certainly, will find ourselves um, experiencing the apparent indifference of the universe or of God or of the fates to our struggles, our pain, because things are happening that just don't seem right. It's not fair that this is happening to me. I didn't deserve this. Or it's not fair that this is happening to her. And we wring our hands. John is in prison. He did nothing wrong. And when John is in prison, something happens to him that happens to a lot of us, especially as we get in touch with the injustice, as we get sort of woken up to the disparity between what should be and what is in the world. John begins to question things. He goes through a bit of an existential crisis, as it were. Disappointment with God comes to even the most devout ones of us. John does what most of us would do. He begins to ask questions. You might think that a man who was hardened by years in the wilderness and a very steady diet of bugs, that he would be able to face just about anything. And yet here he is in prison and he begins to buckle under the pressure of it. He begins to ask really deep down epistemological questions about, like, every, like, about everything. I thought I understood a thing and now I don't. It's not that John is in prison. It's that he's in prison, and outside of prison, Jesus is being a very different kind of Messiah than what John thought he was going to be. That's what's so interesting about this text. It's the word that actually stuck with me the whole week. Verse 2, the very first word I read to you, when. When. When John heard what the Messiah was doing. When he heard. He wasn't in prison not aware of what Jesus was doing. He was getting the reports about what was going on, and the reports about Jesus' ministry were causing him to ask questions. Why? Because the disparity between what John expected the Messiah to be like, what we expect God to be like when he comes on the scene, and what he's actually like is disappointing. It's not what John thought it was going to be. He was expecting something more than this. I mean, it's hard to say it, but he was really kind of saying, like, is this it? This doesn't seem like like enough. Like, it's great that some people are being healed, but I mean, I thought that there'd be more than this. Where's the coming of the kingdom? Where's the power structures being toppled? Where's the Isaiah 35 stuff that Jenny just read to us? Where's like, there's like fields of leaping people who were once lame. Where, where is this happening? Except in small, little, hidden ways. The kind of dissonance between what we want or expect God to be like and what he is actually like comes to all of us if we're willing to follow him long enough. I think it's the collective cry of of God's people in the Bible. How long? Why are you hiding your face from me? How long? Why have you forsaken me? If you read the Old Testament and you read it honestly, especially the Psalms, but really most of the Old Testament, you'll discover that the collective cry of God's people more often than not is, what are you doing? You don't seem to be doing things the way that you should. And that's because you and I think that God should do what we would do if we had infinite power, resources, and love. And we know what we would do. It'd be very easy. If we had infinite, if I had infinite, God help us. If I had infinite power, resources, and love, (laughs) I know what I would do. And it would be better than what's going on. And so we naturally raise questions. We start to doubt. 
We start to pick at and deconstruct. Jesus is a very different Messiah from what John was expecting. He doesn't carry on the message of John. He doesn't speak about coming doom. That was John's message. He talks about the kingdom of God breaking in on the poor and the least, and that all are welcome, the powerful and the powerless. He doesn't take up the mantle of John's lifestyle. He doesn't have an ascetical prophet lifestyle. He doesn't move out into the wilderness. He doesn't wear camel's hair. He doesn't eat bugs. Instead, Jesus moves from town to town. He wears comfortable clothes. He stays in people's homes. And he's always at parties. He's always going to people's house and drinking wine and eating food with sinners and tax collectors. And I just think that this is important to note for those of us who have a very stodgy, sort of sullen Jesus in our mind. A person that got invited to as many parties as Jesus must have been fun to be around. He must have been the sort of person you wanted at your Christmas party. Most of us probably are thinking, oh, if Jesus comes to the Christmas party, we're gonna, it's going to be kind of lame this year. He must have actually been the sort of person that you wanted there because he made the whole thing better, because he was that fun, because he was gregarious, because he told good jokes, because he, because he was the sort of person that lightened a whole space. Just imagine that. Just put that into your imagination. Jesus walking into a space lightens it. He lifts the tension. He removes the heaviness. That's what it was like for how, to have Jesus of Nazareth walk into your house. How different is that than our picture of him? Jesus is always at parties, though. And John's like, what in the world? Like, I ate bugs. I wore fur. Like, I mean, I, like, and here you are. Like, you're... <laughs> this doesn't seem very fair. Meanwhile, Jesus does not in any way take up the role of a Davidic king. He does not preach uh, violence. He preaches nonviolence. He preaches non-resistance. Turn the other cheek. He's not toppling Rome. He's not marching on Jerusalem. He's not doing any of the things that a person should have done. And naturally, John begins to ask questions. Doubt creeps in. He's sitting in a dungeon, and he simply begins to wonder to himself, what if I was wrong about this guy? And maybe that's the question you're asking right now. Like, what if I was wrong about this guy? What if this person is just, what if this is just some sort of a cultural construct? This isn't actually what I thought it was once. And so John dispatches some friends who are on the outside to go to Jesus and to ask once for all. And I was thinking this week about how scary that actually must have been. Because um, I've always just said it. And they came to Jesus and they asked him a question. And it's like a very flat sort of like non-emotional moment. But if you think about it, like these guys are, they probably, they probably felt pretty confident about it until they got closer and closer to Jesus. And as they're walking up to him, <clears throat> they're essentially there to say, you're disappointing but we still have a little bit of hope in you. Are you the, or should we actually look somewhere else? I mean, that's really what the message is. We thought you'd be something else. You're not. We haven't given up totally, but should we? Now, that's a really, really loaded question. That's the sort of question that probably most of us would be really afraid to ask Jesus or anyone. And yet the confidence of John's friends, I think, is meant to give you and me confidence that you can actually ask God anything. You can literally ask anything. Ben Witherington, who's a New Testament scholar, um, <clears throat> writes this. He, he says, one bold message in the book of Job, and I actually just think you could just say in the Bible, one bold message in the Bible is that you can say anything to God. You can say anything to him. You can throw at him your grief, your anger, your doubt, your bitterness, your betrayal, your disappointment. He can absorb them all. 
As often as not, spiritual giants of the Bible are shown contending with God. They would prefer to go away limping like Jacob rather than to shut God out. And in this respect, the Bible prefigures a tenant of modern psychology. I thought this was funny. It prefigures a a tenant of modern psychology. You can't deny your feelings or make them disappear, so you might as well express them. God can deal with every human response except for one. He cannot abide the response that I fall back on instinctively and attempt to ignore him or to treat him as though he does not exist. And so John, with courage, sends his friends to ask a question. And they ask, are you the one or should we wait for someone else? Which leads us to the third movement of our passage. Jesus answers the question, sort of. He answers the question in a sense that he like, he's not bothered by it. He doesn't seem to be put off by it. Um, and he's not bothered or put off by your questions either. Like you could say them right now, and he's not going to be worried about that. What he tells them, though, essentially is that the vision of the Old Testament prophets about what would happen when Yahweh would come and visit his people, the vision that the prophets had, the one like Ginny read to us a few moments ago, that it's happening. It's happening. Go and tell John what you see. Isaiah 35 is happening. Now, Fleming Rutledge notes, like, this answer is really funny because it is happening. It's just happening in very, very micro, it's happening in micro doses. It's happening in a way that's not as general or universal or as large as we would hope it to be. In fact, it's happening in a way that's almost like still somewhat hidden. In fact, Jesus does this thing all throughout his gospel where he heals a person and he's like, shh, don't tell anyone. Like, he's doing that all the time. That seems so different from the vision that we get in Isaiah 35. What is going on here? But Jesus says, essentially, the signs of the kingdom are going to be hidden somewhat, but they are happening. They are visible. You can still see them if you look for them. You just have to look for them. They do remain hidden, though, even today. And then Jesus says, in summary, what I think is maybe the most important word in this this story. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. When Jesus talks about people taking offense at him, he's not simply talking about someone who would be a little bothered by a person. You know, like you can like hear a person say something on television and go like, well, that was kind of offensive, you know. He's not talking about that. The Greek word uh, that is used in the text here is skandaliste, which is where we would get the word scandal or scandalized from. Jesus is saying, blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me, which is another way of saying, blessed is the one who doesn't come to a place where they're so disappointed, so offended, so frustrated, so angry that they find no way forward for us. You know, who's like, essentially writes, writes it off. Not simply, I'm bothered by this, but I don't see a way forward for us in this. And Jesus acknowledges in that just simply that there are going to be some, probably even many, who will be scandalized by him. People who will hear what he says and actually go, I don't see there's a, think there's a way forward for us. And he just says, blessed is the one for whom that is not true. Or one way to put it, blessed is the one who doesn't walk away too soon. Blessed is the one who doesn't throw in the towel too quickly. Blessed is the one who sticks it out. Philip Yancey, who's a Christian author, wrote a book nearly 30 years ago called Disappointment with God, in which he says, faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. I found that this week. I love that. Faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. And <laughs> that's a hard thing for probably some of us to swallow in here. 
because we'd like for it to make sense in advance, you know? Like, that would be ideal. And instead, it only makes sense on the backside, and that's very frustrating. And yet, I would imagine this, with this many people in this room, there's probably a number of you that know that that's true. You actually have experienced it. It does work that way. Faith is actually experiencing in reverse the thing that in the front side didn't make any sense. Which leads to the final movement in our text. And I think the call of this text, um, we are called to release our expectations and to receive God as he is. Maybe this is actually the message of Christmas in general. Maybe this is like the Advent Christmas message to us. You and I are called to release our expectations of what God should be like and to receive him as he is. Some of my greatest struggle with God in my life has stemmed from my anger that he is different from me. That sounds silly, I know. I wouldn't actually want him to be exactly like me. Um, But I just wish he was a little bit more like me. I wish he saw the world a bit more the way I see it. I wish he saw my circumstances a bit more. There's a verse that my youth pastor used to always quote, and it's um, stuck around in my head in kind of a haunting way for like a long time now. Psalm 50, 21, the Lord says, you thought that I was altogether like you. And of course, the implication is like, and I'm not. I'm not like you. I'm different from you. I'm not going to do it the way that you would do it. I'm not going to be the way you would be. I'm not going to think the way you would think. And releasing ourselves to that, submitting ourselves to that. Like, that's what submission is. And there's a reason why submission is not a very popular word today. None of us want to do it. We don't want to submit. I want to get to control the narrative. I want to get to control how it works, how it goes. I don't want to submit. I want to get to, I want to have say in this. Submission is not easy. We sing a song in here. We just, we just sang it. We're, we're going to sing it again in a, in a moment. With my life laid down, I surrender now. I give you everything. Do you have any idea what that means? That thing that we just say. I give you everything. I give you my expectations. I give you my hopes. I give you my dreams, my desires. I give you what I want for myself, what I want for the people I love. I give you my my desires for family. I give you my desires for friendship. I give you my sexual desires. I give you my desires for security and for wealth and for comfort. I give you my desires for whatever it is. I give you everything. I give you everything. I life lay down. I surrender now. Do you have any idea what that means? We just say it. It's so easy. Submission is a very, very hard thing, and it comes at a great cost to us because we have to recognize that what it means for us is releasing God to be who he is and receiving him as he is as he comes to us. But here's the thing. And this is the thing. There is a joy in finding who God really is that is so much greater than if God was just always what you thought he was supposed to be. And I know that doesn't sound true. It probably sounds like, I'm, like it's a consolation prize. It's a way of trying to like work yourself into like, well, at least like, but I'm just telling you, like I can, I can attest to this. I know a number of us in here probably can attest to this. There is a joy in discovering the real God, not the one that we think he should be. There is a joy and peace in discovering that God's love is actually better than what my love would be like if I was making all the decisions. 
It's not a love that I have to manufacture. It is actually greater and bigger. God's eyes have always been open. He has always known. He has always seen. And if God were just a genie in a bottle or if he were just my buddy who just always wants to hang out with me and doesn't ask any questions or if he was just a guy who was in the car and was like along for the ride, if that's what God was like, if when I say God with us, what I really meant by that is like God is like this great embodiment of all of our good ideas about what should be good and he just comes and makes us feel good about ourselves and God with us and isn't this great? If that's what God, God with us is like a thundering lion walking in, a powerful presence that rules the, the cosmos and he comes and he makes order out of chaos. That's what God with us means. God draws near to fix, to heal, to restore. And I'll just tell you, there is a gift for your soul, a joy on the other side of recognizing that God actually is good and not because he's doing what we think good is. Maybe we're supposed to sing. I don't. <laughs> I was writing this last part this morning, and I was so frustrated because I feel like I have no wor- my words are out. I don't know how to say this. That moment in the midst of heartbreak and confusion, when you suddenly realize that God was good all along, that he was good when it felt like he wasn't good, that is a moment that will change your life. That he hasn't fallen asleep at the wheel. He is not confused. His commitment to you has not waned. His eyes have not closed. His ears are not stopped. His arm is not too short. He has never been not in control. He has never not known. He has never not been good. The joy on the other side of that is like the, the way I thought about it. It's like, it's like your ears are, are, are opened and you can, for the first time, you can hear this song that has always been going and you just haven't heard it, but then you hear it, and you're like, oh, okay. It's a song sung over you by a person who loves you perfectly and knows you intimately. It's a song you were made to hear and the song you were made to sing, and then we lose it again, and we get cluttered, and our lives get busy, and we forget, and we go to other things, but then we work our way back to that song. That's what it's like for me. I work my way back to that song, and I go, oh, that's right, that's right. Even though things aren't working out the way I want them to, even though things are harder than they should be, even though this isn't exactly how I would draw it up, and it's certainly not how I would draw it up for them, and it's not fair what they're going through, and it's certainly not fair the way that that person has just had cancer come back for the third time, and it's definitely not fair that they are not able to get pregnant even though they've been trying it for years, and it's really not fair that this person over here has been dying to, to be married and just one bad relationship, abusive relationship after another. It's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. And then I just remember, I like re-enter that moment, that song, and I hear the song again. I go, oh, that's right. You are good. You've not fallen asleep. You have not given up. You have not stopped doing good. There's a promise in the book of Jeremiah where he says, I will never stop doing good to my people. I will never stop doing good. And that's what makes sense of the whole thing. That's what makes sense of a baby in a manger who's here to save the world. That doesn't make any sense otherwise. This is what makes sense of a man on a cross who's defeating death while dying. Eugene Peterson writes in A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship, it is a consequence. It is not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. It is what comes to us when we are walking in the way of faith and obedience. It is what comes to us. It's the consequence. 
So let me read this to you. This is from Isaiah 55 in closing. The Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the sun come down from heaven and do not return there until they've watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent. And what is that thing? What is God's word go out from his mouth to accomplish? What will success be for God? And you will go out in joy and be led back in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Blessed is the one who does not take offense at me, who does not give up too soon, who does not walk away, but believes that I have not walked away. Why don't we stand up together, if you're able. Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity Indicator. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.